Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge, purge me with hyssop, and I shall clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would not give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Hey, will it... Uh... Yeah, it really is a, a privilege to be here. Um, Ireland is uh, my wife and I's honestly favorite place in the world. Like we love, we love where we're from, um, but we've, we've been here twice together now. I've been here a few more times than that. And um, yeah, we just, we, we love it. I, I actually have, uh, it, it, it feels like home to me. It really does. Um, we've done a lot of research around our family and have found out that our family hails from here as well, um, and and actually from Ulster. So this, even in a in a unique way, really feels like coming home. I've I've asked for dual citizenship, and I think they've seen a picture of me and said no. So <laughs> here we are. It'll just be here for uh, here for visits. We're going to get into Psalm 51 in a bit, um, but I want to just. First, I, I was praying, David, for you and Marianne, and I, I want to, um, it, it really has been a difficult season for, for everyone. I mean, I, the, no one in here that I know of has ever lived through a global pandemic and um, all that that brings, but for pastors in a really unique way, it's just been a difficult season. And um, I, I thought of this verse, and I think as, as I've heard David both in person and from afar, talk about Foundation Belfast. It really reflects Paul's heart in 1 Thessalonians 2, where he tells this church that he loves a whole lot. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, 
we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, the good news of God, but also our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. So Paul tells his church that he loves, like, I wanted to share the gospel with you, but it also is a real privilege to share our lives with you. So we just honor that in you. Um, the Bible calls us to, to honor men and women like this. And um, so, yeah, we, we honor all the sacrifice, certainly that you all know about. Um, but the reality of pastoral ministry is there's a whole lot that, that you don't know about. And so we honor that and thank you and bless you for that work. Um, the Psalms, if, if you're not familiar, the Psalms are the prayer book of the people of God. Uh, all of these Psalms would have been ones that the people of God would have taken up in song. They would have pray, prayed together, both when they gathered or when they were just by themselves. Uh, it's the prayer book of the people of God. Jesus would have prayed the Psalms as he was walking to do ministry in different towns. And as he gathered with people, Jesus would have taken these prayers to his lips. The Psalms also, though, explore the full range of human emotion and feelings. It gives us answers for when I've got things going on in my soul, things going on below the surface, it gives us language to express those things. That the emotions that the psalm help us feel, I know some of you are like, I don't really like that. Let's talk about something other than feelings. But the emotions that they help us feel, that they help us process, that they help us pray, this is important to get. All of them are gifts from God meant to experience more of who He is and who we are. So God didn't just create the emotions of gladness and, 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 and joy and, and happiness and then all the other ones, they're really bad. Um, one of the reasons that I, I love Ireland so much is I, I feel very at home when I ask anyone, how are you doing? And it's, oh, it's grand. It's grand. Like, Okay, really, you've just lived through a global pandemic. No, no, it's grand. That is my family to a T. I was raised, emotions are bad, don't feel them, don't express them, don't communicate them. But the Psalms, they actually help us avoid two ditches that are very common when it comes to emotions and to feelings and things like that. One is the ditch of detachment which is kind of how I was raised, and that's feelings are the enemy. They can't be trusted, and you certainly need to distrust people who express them too much. Detachment says it doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what you know. There's truth to that, but it's not the whole truth. So that's one ditch. And our tendency is we, just, we drift from ditch to ditch. So maybe if you were raised like that, or like the measure of a man or the measure of a woman is how little you feel or... Or, or how little you're, you, you're impacted by your feelings, you often drip into the other ditch, which certainly in, in America right now is the cultural no, norm, and that's emotionalism, which is where you are ruled by your feelings. Whatever you feel, that's your truth. You live your life in, in the midst of that. And so if one ditch says it doesn't matter what you feel, the other ditch says all that matters is what you feel. And you need to find people who will just affirm everything that you feel. Your experience is your truth, and that's all that matters. Here's the key with the Psalms. And we'll get to Psalm 51, but I, I, I want us to understand why they're there. That The key with the Psalms is there is an invitation from God, as we read the Psalms, to process the depths of our souls. To say, really, what am I feeling and why? But the key is we do it before the face of God. 
So the psalmist, even in Psalm 51 and other psalms, he's doing that. He's, he's, he's asking questions of his soul. He's curious about what's going on. He's, he's not just saying all the time to every question, it's, it's ground. How's your soul? It's ground. He's not saying that. You'll have to forgive me for the terrible accent. We do it before the face of God. So we're going to jump into Psalm 51. Uh, psalm 51 is, is what's known as a penitential psalm. It's a psalm of contrition. It, it, here's what it is. It's a psalm when you've blown it big time. Like when you have said no to Jesus and yes to sin, and you have just carried on into sin, and you wonder, what do I do now? Psalm 51 is, is the psalm for you. Now, now it's important to note, sin is, is more than just breaking the rules. I think maybe if you've, if you've grown up in any kind of church culture, we think sin is when I break the rules. And so I need to figure out what the rules are, and then I need to not do those things. I need to not break those rules. It's true, but there's more going on. Like when, when we say yes to sin and no to God, no to Jesus, it brings separation from God. Yes, it, like it does. Our sin separates us from God, but it also separates us from other people. If you've sinned against someone you've been in relationship with or they've sinned against you, you know that it fractures the relationship. There, there comes a breaking, but it also separates you from yourself, from your true self. Now, before we get to Psalm 51, I want to do a bit of a setup so that we know like the story behind what's happening here. With a lot of the Psalms, we don't know exactly what's going on. We can guess based on certain things in David or in others' lives. But we actually know, it, in your Bible, it, it probably has some sort of heading to Psalm 51. It, here's what mine says in, in the English Standard Version. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we know exactly what was going on. John Calvin said that the psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. They're an anatomy of all parts of the soul. So two turns... We're going to take today through, the, through these texts. The first is we're going to look at the anatomy of shame. And then we'll look at the anatomy of true repentance. The anatomy of shame and then the anatomy of repentance. So, hold your finger in Psalm 51. If you have a Bible, flip to the left, flip backwards to 2 Samuel 11. And we'll see what set up this psalm. 2 Samuel 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. It says, In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, David, who was king of Israel at this time, sent Joab and his servants with him. Joab was the guy who led the armies of David and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon that David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof, roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah was a, a leader in David's army during this time. Verse 4 says, So David sent messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to, ha to her house, and the woman conceived Bathsheba. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So here's the king of God's people, the one that God himself says, David is a man after my own heart. He has, in a moment of his kingship, 
looked at the power and the influence that, he's, that he has, and he's gotten a bit entitled. He's gotten a bit entitled to be served by other people. And we know this because it's the springtime, and the text makes really clear, he's supposed to be out with his armies fighting. And David's back home. You can almost picture David. He goes up on the roof of his house, and he's looking over his kingdom. Now, David, I, I think... I think we often, like when we think of sin and we, we think of what David's done here, we think he's just stumbled into this. Like he's just gotten up there and he's, he's had this really bad night and he did a horrible thing. But David, no, David knows. This was a time that during this time you would bathe on the roof of houses because it was, very, it was very hot in the houses. This is when you would do it. And it was this time of the day that women would go up and bathe. David knows this. He's walked down that street that you know what's on that street. And you're just, I, okay, I'm just going to have a, a wee walk down this street. David knows what's going on. And he uses his power to abuse Bathsheba. He looks up. He desires something. He sends and takes it. And then she gets pregnant. Now, the, the next verses, what, what happens next in this story is David realizes he's made a mistake. David realizes that he's sinned and he makes the decision that so many of us do when we're caught in sin and that's I've got to cover it in some way. And so what David does is he calls for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He calls him off the front lines, back home to the kingdom, and he tries to get Uriah to go and visit his wife, thinking they'll sleep together. Everyone will think this is Uriah's child. My sin will be covered. And, and I, I do, I see a lot of myself in David. When you're confronted with sin, this is what we often do. Well, I've blown it, and now I need to just, I need to keep it under wraps. I need to make sure that no one else finds out about this. I'll never do it again, but I need to make sure that no one finds out about it. Well, Uriah doesn't do that. He says, no, my men are on the front lines of battle. I'm not going to go home and, and have this great night. Uh, like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And so he sleeps at the door of the king, David ends up getting Uriah drunk, thinking, well, maybe if he's drunk, his inhibitions will be lowered, and then he'll go, and he doesn't do... Like, I'm sharing all these details because I want you to see how far David has spiraled in this moment. None of that works. And so David, rather than owning his sin in this moment, says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send Uriah back to the front lines. I'm going to give him a letter to give to Joab, who is the general of the armies, and that letter calls Joab. He says, send Uriah to the front lines of the battle, to the fiercest part of the battle. And when the battle's at its fiercest, everyone retreat, leave Uriah there, he'll be killed. This is, this is, this is in, in Holy Scriptures. King David. One of the reasons that I believe the Bible is true is that it does not hide the flaws of its supposed heroes. See, I grew, I grew up in church and I never heard this story about David. It was always David slayed Goliath and he tore a bear apart with his hands and he was always faithful to the Lord. We need a king better than David. So this is David. Uriah dies. Bathsheba mourns. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. Thinking, okay, I've done some horrible things, but now it's fine. Verse 27 Lest we think David gets away with it scot-free. Verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11, the second part of it says, the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. So what God does is he sends the prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes to David to confront David. And he tells David this story. He says, hey David, here's something that's happened in your kingdom. 
there was these two men. One of the guys, very rich, had all kinds of sheep, all kinds of property, very rich. The other man, very poor. He had this one sheep that he loved very, very much. He took care of it, treated it like it was his own child. And this man, the rich man, he had some visitors come into town, and rather than killing one of his own sheep to provide for them, he went and he took that poor man's single sheep, he killed that sheep to feed his family. What do we do about this situation? And David is enraged because sin makes you numb. Rather than David saying, oh my, that's exactly what I've done. David's enraged and he says, bring that man to me and we're going to put him to death. And then Nathan says very famously, David, you're the man. You're the man who's done this. Here's where we get to the anatomy of shame. The anatomy of shame. When you're confronted with your own sin, like David is in this moment, he can't hide. Nathan knows everything that's happened. He can't hide. There's an opportunity for either shame or guilt that leads to repentance. Now, what is, what is shame? And I want to explore both of these. I think you see both in David. Shame is a devastating attack, a, a devastating tactic of our enemy. Kurt Thompson, who is this uh, doctor from Washington, D.C., who's done a lot of research around shame. I found his stuff very helpful. He's a Christian guy. He says, shame is a feeling that is deeply associated with a person's sense of self, apart from any interactions with others. Guilt, on the other hand, emerges, emerges as a result of something that I have done that negatively affects someone else. Guilt is something I feel because I have done something bad. Guilt is saying, I have sinned against Bathsheba. I've sinned against Uriah. I have caused great harm to them. That would be guilt. Shame is something I feel because I am bad. Guilt is something where you look at and you say, I have done something wrong to someone else and it needs to be covered. Shame says, you are bad. You'll always be bad. No one will ever love you. So shame tells you a few things. First, shame tells you that you're alone. David, in this moment, he's, he's isolated, he's alone in secrecy, in aloneness like that. That's where shame thrives. Shame will try to convince you that even when you're around other people, you're totally alone. Whatever's going on, whatever sin you've committed, you cannot let other people into that because you are completely alone. No one else has sinned like that. No one has blown it. If people in this room know what you've done, they will turn their backs on you. This is what shame wants you to believe. It's kind of that voice inside your head that says, no, no, no. Keep this secret. Don't let it out. You see that in David. Rather than David saying, hey, I've blown it, he says, oh, oh I've got to take care of this. He tries to tell you you're alone, and then it tells you you have to hide. So do you notice this in David? He, he, he hides like rather than, again, bringing sin into the light, sin thrives in the darkness and David hides. And he hides through calling Bathsheba and he hides through trying to get Uriah to cover his own sin. And then he really hides by taking Bathsheba as his own, uh, as his own wife. If you know the story of Genesis 3, this is what Adam and Eve do as well. They blow it. They eat this fruit that God told them not to eat. And then what do they do? They, they don't come to God and say, God, we've blown it. Would you do something about it? They run and they hide in the bushes. This is what the followers of Jesus, if, if you're familiar with the disciples, this is what they do. When Jesus is betrayed and he's arrested, they all scatter and they hide. It's because shame tries to tell you you're alone. It also tells you you need to hide. 
Shame also tells you that you have to make things right on your own. You see this in David. He's not said, I I don't know what to do. God, I don't know how to make this better. I don't know what to do. I've sinned against Bathsheba. I've sinned against Uriah. I've sinned against the people of God who trust me to be their leader. God, what do I do? Shame tells him, David, you've got to make it right on your own. So kill Uriah, take Bathsheba as your wife. Shame tells you that you are wrong. You'll never be enough. You'll never have enough. You're alone. God and no one else would accept you if they really knew the real you. That's all shame. Shame is a tactic of the enemy. Guilt is really good, though. Guilt says not that you are wrong. No one will ever love you. Guilt says you have done wrong, and it needs to be paid for. It needs to be atoned for. So what we see in David is is David is actually, he's broken before the Lord. He's devastated. 2 Samuel 12 verse 13 says this, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, this is crazy, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. I think if we're on, like, I think if we're honest, you may hear that and say, I don't like that. David's abused this woman. He's killed her husband. Like, it's, it's okay to say that. It's okay to be like, I don't like that very much. So we need to ask, how has God done that? David just says, God, I've sinned against you. How has God done it? Through repentance. That's what leads us to Psalm 51. In this moment, David runs out of the shadows into the light. He, he rejects the lies that shame's trying to tell him. And he runs into the light. Guilt causes him to be broken over his sin. To, to truly feel broken over his sin. And it leads to repentance. And, and that's what we see in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, the, the anatomy of shame tells you you're alone You have to hide. You have to make things right on your own. It's all on you. It's all dependent on you. And Psalm 51 teaches us what to do with and how to express our brokenness before God. To say, God, I've really blown it. And I feel guilty about this. And what do I do now? So first first movement is the anatomy of shame. Now I want you to see the anatomy of repentance. Like, what is it? How do we get it? How can we hear like David did, God has put away your sin in the midst of our utter failures? Now, repentance is, briefly and as easy as I can say it, it's, it's saying yes to God and no to sin. It, it involves turning from sin and turning towards God. It's, it's not just saying, okay, God, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I promise I'll never do it again. It involves, yes, turning away from the the lie that sin holds out to you, but then actually turning towards God, saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. And Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, this is what Jesus said, turn from your sin, turn to God, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So Psalm 51 isn't a one-time read. It's not a God, I've blown it, I'm going to read Psalm 51, and then we're good to go. This is well-worn in my Bible. It's one that I come back to often when I have sinned against God or sinned against people and say, God, I, I need you to deal with my sin. So what does repentance look like? Just a few thoughts on this. First, repentance appeals to the character of God. 
So, so often when we sin, we, t- we deal with it by talking about what we're going to do. God, I'll never do this again. Or you sin against your children or you sin against your wife or someone you're in relationship with. I know I've really blown it and I promise I'll, I'll never do that again. That's not what David does. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51 again. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast, your covenantal love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, my sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you notice David just appeals to the character of God. He's not saying, God, here's all the things that I'll do for you. I'll never do that again. When the kings are supposed to be out at war, I'll go out to war. And I won't go on the rooftop at that time of night when I know women are going to be out bathing. And I'll never again sleep with a woman who's not my wife. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't unfold this list of all these things that he's going to do to make God happy with him. (laughs) But isn't that often what we do? God, oh man, I... That Saturday night, that Friday night, I, I did a horrible thing, but I, I'm going I'm to go to church every Sunday, and, and I'm going to give, and I'm going to do all... That's not what he does. He doesn't appeal to his ability to make things right in his own life. He appeals to the character of God, the nature of God. David knows he can't do this on his own. He desperately needs God, and so it's God that he turns to, not self. When you're trapped in sin, the call is to look up, not in. So look at God, not yourself. He appeals to the character of God. Second, repentance acknowledges that sin is primarily against God. Verse 4 of Psalm 51, it says, I mean, and think about this. David's writing this when Uriah is in the ground, Bathsheba is his wife, the child that they've conceived ends up not making it, because of David's sin. And David says in verse 4, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What David is able to recognize is that his heart strayed from God long before he walked up on that building. That this wasn't just this moment where he said, I had this moment of weakness. David's able to look at his life and say, my heart drifted from God long before my body chose that action. This is why he says in verse 12, God, I need you to restore to me the joy of my salvation. David knows he said yes to sin and no to God because his heart had drifted from God. Something had gone wrong earlier in his life. And so he's able to pray in verses 10 through 12, God, I need you to create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What David knows is like his list of all the things he's going to do to make God happy isn't going to change the fact that his heart wanted things other than God. And so it's not just how have I blown it, what are the specifics and how I've sinned. We've got to peel back the layers a bit and say, what's going on in my life that I desired that more than God in that moment? That I said, yes, I I want to do this thing rather than enjoying all the pleasures that God himself gives us. That's why David can say, God, my sin is first and foremost against you, against you. 
Third, repentance takes ownership. And it doesn't minimize, it doesn't downplay, it doesn't shift the blame for sin onto someone or something else. This is so important for us, right? Like, I, I say, like, this is not just in America. This is everywhere. We're, 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 and this is in biblical times. It's now. We are always looking for someone or something else to blame on our sin. To blame our sin for. Yeah, God, I've chosen to do. I mean, David could have said, like, well, yeah, I've, I've gone and I've done that, God. But it's, you know, my wife, my other wives that I have, they've not been kind to me. And we've, our relationship has been really tough. And I'm the king. Don't I deserve good things? Like, David could have done that. He doesn't do that. We have a tendency to, when we sin, start looking everywhere else to make ourselves feel better. So, well, yeah, God, I've sinned in this way, but it's not as bad as this other person I know. We'll start to do things like, well, God, I've blown it like this, but I'm, I'm glad that I haven't blown it like that other person. We're comparing ourselves to the wrong person when we do that. We don't, it doesn't blame shift. David's not saying like, well, all these things have happened in my life and those things are what drove me to this moment. Though these things are important, it's important to understand like, how, how you were raised in relationships that you had. Like, it's important to understand how they impact your life right now. But David doesn't say, well, all these things happen and it led to this. He just says, like he takes total ownership for this sin. He doesn't say, well, I'm the king and I deserve this. Verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 51, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David's not saying, God, yes, I've blown it, but I thank you that I haven't blown it like these other kings of Israel that came before me. I didn't blow it nearly as much as Saul, the guy who had this job before me. He takes total ownership. That's what repentance looks like. When you're truly repentant over sin, you, you just take, you're not trying to look for somebody else or look for something else. How can I blame it on them? Or, yeah, I, I did this, but it was really the kids made me angry that day and that's what led to this situation. It just says, no, no, no. I'm acknowledging my own sin before God and before people. Fourth, and, and finally, repentance refuses to hide. This is very interesting to me. Do, do you notice the intro to the psalm says to the choir master, a psalm of David. To the choir master meant David wrote this song to be sung by other people. David has sinned publicly and he's repenting publicly. He's not trying to sweep it under the rug. He's not doing like we so often do. Let's, let's minimize the fallout from this sin or from this leader who's been caught in sin. He, he, he doesn't do that. David himself says, no, no, no. I'm the king of Israel. I've sinned publicly, and I'm going to repent publicly as well. So we need to ask, like, ask the question, well, where, where do we go from here? I mean, is it like, hey, let's go have, I think, curry is what I heard. Like, let's go have curry, and every, everybody just repent. Just repent. Do it really well. Do all those four points, and I'll email them to you later so you know what they are. And do those... Do the, I want to point out a part of this story that I think gets missed pretty often. Back in 2 Samuel 11, you don't have to turn there. Back in 2 Samuel 11, where we hear, like after David has done all that he's done, it says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
the Bible wasn't original. When the Bible was originally written, it didn't have chapters and verses. And, and sometimes those chapter and verse breaks are a bit unfortunate because because we'll read Second Samuel eleven and then stop. And well, tomorrow morning I'll get up or you know. Two weeks from now when I remember to read the Bible again, or I don't, I don't know what it is. I'll, I'll read 2 Samuel 12. Th- that text continues. The thing that David had done displeased the word, Lord, verse 1 of chapter 12, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. God moves towards you before you move towards him. Like, God wasn't waiting for David to, to realize all that he'd done, to repent. God's not standing back and saying, hey, those four things about repentance, do those things and then I'll come and I'll make this right. Before David even was convicted over his sin, before any of that, it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. God moves towards you just like he did towards David before you move towards him. Our perspective is so often as it relates to sin and Maybe if you're here and, and you would say like, I don't know if I'm a follower of Jesus or I, I'm trying to figure this whole thing out. Like, I'm so excited you're here. But if your perspective of what it means to love and follow Jesus is, is you meet God halfway and then he, he kind of does the rest. It's like you run half the race and then he'll come in and finish it out for you. That's not what happens. Before David moves toward God at all, God is already moving towards him. He says these things like in verse 2, he asks God, would you wash me? God, would you cleanse me? Would you purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean? He's saying, my sin has caused me to be stained. He's talking about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. That, that, that was the way during the time that God dealt with the sins of his people. The blood of an innocent animal would be poured out and they would cover things with that blood. And that was how God would wipe away the sins of his people. What David knows is that his sin separates him from the relational presence of his God and that there's nothing David can do about it. All David's asking is, God, would you wash me and I'll be clean? Would you purge me with hyssop? It's not, God, uh, you wash me a little bit and then I'll, I'll, finish, I'll finish the job. Or you give me the tools to wash myself and then I'll, I'll finish the job. But again, I think that's the way most of us either cognitively think what, that's what it means to follow the Lord, or that's experientially how we live our lives. Like God just gives you the tools to wash yourself clean, and then you, you, take, you take it from there. That's not what David does. This is reflected in the great hymn, Rock of Ages. It's one of my favorites. The hymnist says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. He's saying, like, I I can't do enough to make myself right under the law. He says, could my zeal no respite? No. He's saying, God, if I could just be so passionate about the Lord, things of the Lord, and so excited all the time, that wouldn't work. Could my tears forever flow? Like, if I could, in looking at my sin, if I could just weep for all the days, be so broken over my sin, he's saying, no, 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 that's not going to do it. All of that for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. The author of the Rock of Ages gets what David gets here. Saying, God, blot out my transgressions. Wipe them away. Blot out all my sins. This is what Paul's after in Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our sins, all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Just like David, like you and I, we can't cover our sin. We can't cover the waves we've blown it. You need to stop trying to make yourself feel better about the sin by just comparing yourself to all the people who are worse. That, that's not going to work. David couldn't do anything. He couldn't do any of this on his own, and, and, and neither can you. And so he turns to God. Here's what's really beautiful. As David turns towards God, he realizes that God has already turned towards him. And I think, like, if you, like it would, might be helpful for you to just think, if you were to be honest about what's really going on in your soul, if you were to be truly honest about darkness that's in there, unconfessed sin, and if you were to confess that truly before God and before His people, if you were to do that, What would God look like as you turn back around? And I, I think most of us, as we picture God, if you're like, man, I've been running away from Him for years. If anybody in here knew all the ways that I've run, they, they wouldn't want me here. They wouldn't invite me to lunch. I think I can confidently say this is a pretty safe place to turn from sin and turn back towards God, where you meet a community with open arms. And experience a God who, when you turn around, doesn't have his arms crossed saying, it's about time. He has his arms open saying, welcome home, my boy, my sweet daughter. I love you. I'm for you. I've given my son to wash your sins away. Let me pray for you. Jesus, yeah, we just thank you that you are a God who deals gently with us. You're compassionate. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And, and I do pray, like all the ways that we respond to you like David, by running and hiding and trying to make things right on our own, all of that is driven by a fear that you won't actually accept us if we truly turn around. Or that we need to, in some way, make ourselves acceptable to you. God, I pray for the faith and the grace, the insight and power through your spirit to be able to say, like David, God, I can't do it. And I need you to. And I pray that this pattern of repentance in my life and in my new friends' lives here, that that would be a regular pattern, that they regularly say, no, all that sin holds out, I'm going to reject that again today. And turn to you, God. I pray even over secret sins and areas of our lives that we keep hidden. I pray that maybe even today, friends in here would experience you coming and saying, I've not turned my back on you. Before you've even felt conviction over this or a desire to turn towards me, I was running towards you. And we know that's true because that's what you've done for us in Jesus. It's in your name, Christ. Son of the living God, Almighty King, that we pray. Amen.